superintendent, um, Brother Don James, and, and I've known um, the Jameses for uh, quite a number of years. We pastored together up in North Jersey, served on the Presbytery together, and our lives have kind of intertwined through the years. And just appreciate the kind of pastor that Brother Don has been and the kind of leader he's been for our New Jersey network. And, and so I invited him to come because I wanted you as a congregation to meet our new superintendent. And so he's here with us. So will you welcome him, those of you who are in the house and those of you who are online. Thank you, Don and Donna, for being here with us. Well, good morning, everyone. This is the lovely Donna. Welcome to all of you that are here in the sanctuary with us. So glad to be here with you. Look forward to it. Welcome to all of you that are online. We've been doing a little bit of online over the last uh, few months, like most of you. So glad our churches are beginning to get open back up. And uh, this, I think, is our third or fourth week out after kind of being locked up for, for a long, long time. It's great to be with the body of Christ. Hope you, hope you learn to like us and love us because we're going to be with you for all of eternity. And uh, now's a good time to get, get started with that. But I'm going to have Donna uh, pray for you today. Maybe, babe, you could just include um, anybody, anybody here in the house that has a need in your body. You just need to be touched by God this morning. Maybe some of you, sure, some of you that are at home, guess what? God, geography doesn't mean anything. Distance doesn't mean anything to God. He is as powerful as in your living room as he is here in the sanctuary. And so we're just going to believe for just a divine moment right now where God comes and by his Holy Spirit just sovereignly touches people. Can we just ask everybody here to just stand for, for a moment? It does two things. It puts us in a posture before God. And for all of you that were about ready to fall asleep, it, it beats that as well. So Donna's going to pray, and uh, God's going to come. And we're going to believe you're going to be touched, and the Lord's going to be honored, and then we're going to get into the Word. Thanks, babe. Well, it is a joy to be here with you this morning. So uh, let's just put our hands on our heart. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your presence here this morning. Your Word declares that wherever two or more are gathered in your name, there you are. We uh, invite an increase of your Holy Spirit now, Lord, for those in the room that, and those online, Lord, that have raised their hand that need a touch in their bodies, Lord, teach it, need a touch in their emotions, Lord, in relationships. Lord, you know where each one of us are. It's been a season, Lord, of so many unknowns, and yet you are the God who knows all things. You know us. You know us by our names, Lord. You have uh, formed us. You know us, and so, Lord, for uh, each of us this morning, we just come before you. We thank you, Lord, that you've heard our requests. Lord, you know even things we have not spoken out, but, Lord, the innermost parts of us, Lord Jesus, that you want to come in and speak. So, Lord, speak to us this morning through your messenger, through Don, as he brings the word this morning. Open our hearts to the truths of your word. Uh, we just love you, Lord. We thank you, God, for your glory uh, and for who you are in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, hon. God bless you. You can be seated. Nice to have Margaret and Lou with us today, two of our dear, dear friends that for many years are part of our congregation in, uh, up in North Jersey until they got rebellious and moved. But, um, you know, it's a great joy to be a part of the body of Christ. Great to be with my wife. We're new in this role. 
I was the assistant superintendent for 16 years, but in that role, we were allowed to continue to pastor our church, which was awesome. And then when I was elected superintendent, it meant uh, resigning our church after 34 years. We had five campuses and an online campus in, in North Jersey. So it's been, it's been strange. We moved to a new city out of North Jersey that is packed with, you know, with millions of people. We moved to Chesterfield, New Jersey, that has 7,000 people and uh, 10,000 horses. And so it's been quite a, quite a change for us, but uh, we're delighted to do whatever God asks of us, right? Whether it's our role, your role, that's the whole key. Happiness is found in the will of God. And so uh, we're going with, the, going with the flow. And great to be, Tim, with you and, and Kim and your family, too. Long, long time friends, as, as Tim said. So today I want to talk to you about what I would consider the bedrock issue of maybe the Bible, but definitely of the New Testament. Jesus finishes his, his little chat, his last evening chat with his disciples before his, his uh, ascension, sharing with them this little bedrock truth. Uh, he shares a lot during the Gospels about this bedrock truth. And because it is really the last thing he shares with us, you and I should consider it as more than essential, but foundational to everything that we are and everything that we do. And so what I'm talking about is a true sense of discipleship in our lives. These are the marching orders that Jesus gave to his disciples that they are to go and make disciples of the whole world. And I always thought this, and think about this for your own life, it's really hard to go make a disciple unless you are a disciple. How can we make something of somebody else that we have not really embraced totally ourselves? And so in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus' closing words, right before he ascends, he gives them what we know as what? The Great Commission. And most of us jump on to the go part of it. And that's really, really important. But the real meat of it, as a matter of fact, in the original language, the focal point of the passage is to go and make disciples. That is really what they're to do. So let me add a little bit more to the mix. This is not the first time Jesus had talked about this idea of being a disciple. In John 13, 35, he says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So there's a fruit that comes from our life when we love one another, and that way it shows forth our discipleship. In John 8, 31, he says this, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And so that's our mandate. Sometimes it's a little tough to pull that off. It is a process. It's not something that happens instantly. There's not just a magic potion that allows this to happen. We have to walk into this. We have to embrace this role. And it is a little bit difficult sometimes to pull this together. I read a cartoon a while back. How many of you remember the Peanuts cartoons, of course? And, and uh, there's Charlie Brown and Lucy, and Lucy's at her psychiatry booth. And uh, so she's philosophizing, and she says, uh, listen, Charlie, life is a lot like a deck chair. Some put it in a position so they can see where they've been. Others put it in a position to see where they're going. 
Some put it in a place that they can just see where they are in the, in the moment. And Charlie sighs and he goes, oh boy, I can't even get mine unfolded. You know, and that's the way sometimes it is when people talk about this idea of Jesus calls me to be a disciple. But how do I unfold this? What does this look like in, in my life? Uh, sometimes we talk about being disciples, but I don't know, especially from the biblical context, if we really understand what that means. And let me explain that to you. It's what this message is really all about. We, we have to start at this point that we have to understand that the New Testament was written in Greek, but Jesus was not Greek. Jesus was not a part of the Greek culture, even though by this time it had pretty well made its way around through Alexander the Great to most of the known world. It was the trade language of the day. It was the common shared language of the day. But Jesus wasn't from that culture, nor did, I'm sure he knew Greek because he made all of the languages up, but uh, he probably didn't embrace that aspect of it. He was a Jewish man. He walked with Jewish friends. He grew up in a Jewish city. He grew up in a Jewish culture. And the, the culture of that day was very Middle Eastern or what we would known or called in those days as an Oriental culture. The Oriental culture was very different than the Western Greek culture. Much of what we find in secularism today was founded in this secular Greek culture. Very, very different than the Jewish culture. In the Oriental culture, they kind of lived cyclical. They're, you know, they're, in our culture, we live very linear. It's I, I live from event to event to event to event. They kind of lived with the idea, well, I'm going to raise my kids and my grandkids to do what's right, and if I don't get it done, then my grandkids will. So a very different mindset. And if you're going to really understand Jesus and the teaching, you need to kind of embrace that. And nothing is more apropos to that than understanding this idea of what a, a disciple is. And so Jesus was used to the Jewish realm of teaching and, and training. This is what he embraced. He himself would have had much of this teaching. And, and so even though the New Testament was written in Greek, we find, as it was translated into Greek, that it brings this Greek word, and I'll put some stuff on the board here for you, but it brings this Greek word, mathetes, that's what you see in Matthew 28. It says, go and make disciples. Mathetes is the Greek word. But here's where the, the, uh, the, the breakdown kind of becomes, because mathetes, or a disciple, was not a new word to Jesus. It wasn't a new word to the culture. You and I both know that this word disciple, if we went throughout the sanctuary or quizzed some of you on online, you would say, well, a disciple is a learner follower. Wave at me if that's how you've been taught, right? That's what a disciple is. He's a learner follower. However, you could be a disciple of any teacher. Socrates, Aristotle, all of them, Plato, they all had disciples. They all had those that learned their philosophies and their ways. Now, this is really important to understand because this is going to help you every day in your life. Here, here's where the breakdown comes, though. For Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, the other Greek philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics, they, there was all about giving information. Everybody say information. Information. However, Jesus' idea of a disciple was all about transformation. 
He didn't want to just give some nuggets of truth. How many are with me? He wanted to give them something that would absolutely transform their life. And the Jewish methodology of making disciples, that's what it's all about. It was a very, very different concept than the Western culture or the Greek culture. Now, sadly, over the last couple of thousand years, the church has followed much more the Western culture, the Western idea uh, of lifestyle. And, and so we've kind of got away from what Jesus would have, have meant. Now, the Hebrew word that Jesus, so when Jesus was talking to his disciples, he would not have been calling them matetes, or when he quoted these words that we just read three different times, he wouldn't have used, he wouldn't have spoken the word matetes. That's what it's translated. But he would have called them his Talmud, or his disciples Talmudim, all right, the, the plural of that. This, and this would have meant a, a lot to them. They, they would have known because the goal of this was to become like your master, not just receive information from your master. How many are tracking with me, right? But to become like your, your master. You kind of see this in the New Testament when Jesus says a verse that confused me for a long time until I began to, began to understand this a little more. In, in Mark chapter 3, verse 23, it says, Jesus called his disciples to be with him, his Talmud to be with him. And I said, yeah, what? Then, then what, right? Because, well, you call, I'm calling you to be with me. Yeah, but what are we going to do? What, what's that all about? And, and it's the idea of no, there's nothing more added to that. To be with him, to learn of him, to become like him, to absorb him, and to be transformed into everything that he is. And the verse began to make sense that it meant a lot more than just hang out with him, but literally to take on his character. So this concept of following a master much more than just listening to a teacher. And you see this in the New Testament. Jesus will say things like the student, the actually the word used there, the Talmud, is not above his master. He's not above that. There's, it's a bigger concept. Jesus is often called master in the New Testament. So the rabbi or, or sage was technically more than just a person who gave information. As a matter of fact, in Jesus' day, there were major rabbi learning centers throughout all of Israel, and primarily the great ones were in the Galilee uh, region. You've heard of the Sephardic Jews. Well, the Sephardic Jews was the first training centers that ever existed, and they were, they were headquartered, and to this day they're still there, by the way, but they were headquartered in the Galilee and so many of the great masters, the sages, the rabbis, would be released from there. You read in the book of Acts about another one, and so kind of which rabbi that you associated with yourself would bring your status up a little bit. Remember, in the book of Acts, Paul refers to Gamaliel, right? When he's given his testimony, and they're kind of saying, well, well, how much of a Jew are you? I mean, how much do you really know this? Paul immediately knows which card to play. He goes out and he says, well, uh, let, me, let me just tell you, I went to the school of Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was the leading sage of his day. He was the leading master. So Paul's saying, I went to MIT. You know, I, I, I just graduated from the Harvard School of Theology. 
you know, that, that type of a thing. And, and so the master that you followed meant a lot to the way that you would be consecrated toward the things of God. And that's what they began to, to teach. As a matter of fact, in the ancient writings of the Mishnah, there's a lot that is talked about concerning this and about how they would take a young boy. Now, the Mishnah was written primarily in that 400-year period be, between the end of uh, Malachi in the, in the time of Jesus. And there's a lot in there about the role of the rabbi as the synagogue system had begun to be birthed in, in Israel and how they would educate the young Jewish boy. So when we read about Jesus' disciples, Jesus' Talmudim, people like James and John, Peter and Andrew, they would have all at some point been a part of at least a portion of this type of a school. And so you say, well, well, what did that look like? Well, when a boy was four or five years old, sorry, gals, you kind of got left out of it. Now we're much more inclusive. But when a boy was four or five years old, he would go to something that was known as Bet Sefir. So you recognize the term Bet or Beth, right? And uh, it's this idea of the house. Bet is, is the house. So we have Bethlehem, the house of bread. We have Beth Seda, where James and John, Peter and Andrew were from, the house by the sea. And so this is what happened. They would go to Beth Sephir or the house of the book. And you're going to find this mind-boggling, but this is the way that it worked. When they were four or five years old, these masters would begin to pour into them. The master would go village to village to village and begin to pour into them all of the teaching of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And they would begin, when they were four or five years old, to try to have, be on a quest that by they were, the time they were 10 years old, they would have the Torah memorized. And everything was by rote. Everything was oral teaching. So it was oral and oral and oral. They would, they would give them verses, and they would say, learn them now and, and repeat them back. And this is how they, they learned. When they were 10 years old, then they would go to what was known as Bet Talmud or the House of Learning. And now they would meet every single day with the, the rabbi, still village to village to village. So these little boys that Jesus would call to be his followers, they had grown up in this system. There would have been a sage. It would have been a master that would have gone to Beth. Those four boys happened to be from Bethsaida. So they would, he would go there. They would be in, involved in this, this house of learning. And they would memorize not only then the, the, uh, the Torah, but they would memorize many other portions of, of the Scripture. They would learn from the interpretations of the Master. So these rabbis, they would read the law, and almost like a commentator writer today, they would write their commentaries. They would write their interpretations of the law. Now think back to your New Testament. You see this all over the place. Jesus is continually contesting the truth of God with the interpretations of the rabbis, because every rabbi was learned, so they took pride in developing their own body of learning, their own body of writing. And guess what that was called? It was called the yoke. So when we read Matthew 11, that Jesus says, my yoke, take my yoke upon you. It, it's lighter. It's easier to carry. It's not going to be a burden to you. Jesus was not referring to the yoke that you would put on an animal. He was referring to a body of teaching. 
He's saying the rabbis, they have all their own interpretations. And by the way, during that 400-year period, they took 10 laws and added 600 to it. And so Jesus said, you can't even keep your own law, let alone anybody else. That was known as their yoke. And so Jesus said, by the way, my teaching is much easier. It's much more successful. It's not going to just inform you. It's going to transform you. You may want to think about taking it on you. And it brings a little bit of an understanding to how all of these various things work. And so this took place in a young boy's life up through 10, from, from four or five years old, up through almost 15. And then something dramatic happened when these young boys were 15 years old because they can now begin to develop their own yoke, and they would go to Bet Midrash or the house of study, but not everybody would go there. At this point, the rabbi would select only the best of the best to, to be a part of Bet Midrash. And so almost like a coach making cuts on an athletic team, he would go to the village and he would line the boys up and he would start down through there, and he would say this to him. He would say, you come and follow me. That was the call of the rabbi. Come and follow me. To the next one, he would go, I'm sorry, you go back to your father's profession. You go back to, to labor. Oh, you come and follow me. You, you come and follow me. No, 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 you go back to your father's profession. Now, let's jump into the New Testament. So, some were selected some were not. When Jesus walks beside the Sea of Galilee, where do we find his followers to be? They are in their father's profession. They are fishermen. The Bible tells us that James and John are literally fishing with their father, Zebedee, right? So what had happened to them when they were 15 years old? They'd been cut. They didn't make the team. They lived with a rejection of that. And by the way, when you read through the New Testament, some of this comes to light. But if you don't understand this idea, it doesn't make sense to you. Do you know that James and John were also called the sons of thunder? What does that mean? Well, they, they had a fiery side to them. Remember, they were visiting one village, and the people didn't cooperate. And they said, hey, hey, Jesus, I have a suggestion. Let's just burn it down. You know? And then Peter and Andrew constantly compensating. You know, Peter lived with foot and mouth disease. He, he was constantly compensating. They go to the Mount of Transfiguration, and, and Peter, he has to, you know, here's, here's Moses and Elijah and Jesus. They're all transformed in glorious form. Well, well, Peter, he's always compensating, see, because he'd been cut at one time in his life. And so he's going, oh, 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 I got an idea. Why don't, why don't we build a little tabernacle to everybody, an altar up here? This is what happens when you live with that idea, probably after they'd been cut. How many times did somebody in the city, how many times did somebody said to them, you're not good enough. You don't measure up. You couldn't make the team. You don't have what it takes. There may be somebody here this morning. There may be somebody watching online. They, they, somebody's told you over the years, you don't have what it takes. You're, you're not good enough. You don't, you don't measure up. Well, this is the world that Jesus walks into. And it really is an incredible, incredible thing to see what happens here. And so picture the scene by the Sea of Galilee. 
here are these boys that are probably, if you, you know, if John lived in 90, 92 AD, Jesus came around 30 AD, then just kind of do the math for yourself. He, he's probably, these boys, are, these disciples are probably somewhere between 18 and 22 years old. So they're, they're still young. It, it's still fresh. The, the wound is still a little bit there of the rejection of them. Now they're out there in their father's profession. They're, they're fishing along, and all of a sudden, this young rabbi comes by. And what does he say to them? He says to them something very interesting. And he calls out, James, John, Peter, Andrew. Remember what he said? Come, follow me. Well, those weren't just words of invitation. Those were the words of the rabbi of selection of Talmud. He is the God of second chances. They get a second chance. That's why you see this crazy response. It says they immediately drop their nets and follow him. I mean, see you, Dad. We're out of here. We waited for this. We were 15 years old. We were rejected. We were sent back. We weren't wanted. I just got a second chance at life. There's a God who gives us a second chance over and over and over. To God, there's no one who's totally failed beyond the point of repair, beyond the point of his destiny in our life. And Jesus calls these young men to a new destiny, and they drop everything. And they would go, and they would follow him closely, because now there's another aspect of this that feeds into this. In the ancient day, there was a phrase that was used, and uh, it, it's a very, very important phrase, but... When you were Talmudim and you were following a rabbi, then they knew which rabbi you followed by this phrase. They say they see the dust of the rabbi on your clothes, on your sandals. You would follow him. It was just a saying. It was a metaphor for I follow him so closely that the sand or the dust that he kicks up from his sandals goes on to me. I'm on him, you know, like a fly on watermelon. I mean, I am just right there the whole time. And so you would, they would begin to know if they were following a rabbi who lived down by the seashore where the sands were, were white and everything, they'd see the white dust and they would say, oh, you, 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 must, be, you must be a, a, a Talmudim of, of Rabbi Eli. Or if they were up in, around Chorazim and they were up in the red hills above Galilee and they would see the red clay on, the, on their sandals or on, on their garment, they would say, oh, you must be a, a, a Talmudim of a Rabbi Shlomo. They could always identify which rabbi they walked with. And so here are these Talmud now becoming followers of Jesus, becoming transformed into the character of Jesus, because the goal of the rabbi was to make them like him. It's his same goal today. We may not walk beside the sea with him. We may walk in our occupations. We may walk in our roles as parents, husbands, wives, whatever the case may be. But to this day, you and I are called to wear the dust of our rabbi. People should know to whom we belong because of the transformation that is taking place in our life. Now we're a part of the all-star team, you see. We've been selected. Come, follow me. When Jesus first tugged on your heart, it was very similar words to that. 
Drop your old way of life. Come and follow me, and I'll change you forever. And so most of us, if not all of us here, have done that. And if you're here today or watching and you haven't done that, you are missing the most glorious experience you could ever imagine on this earth. And so when these young men then would become 20 years old, they could, they'd been Talmud for five years. Now they could begin to choose their own occupation of being a rabbi. They could be recognized as a rabbi. And at this point, they could begin to further develop their own yoke and even bring their yoke into the synagogue and begin to teach. And so this would take place for a 10-year period until they became 30 years old. Now think about Jesus. When did his ministry launch? 30 years old, right? And so you see this whole thing playing out behind. this. See, this is like an onion skin. All of this lays under the complexion of the New Testament. And so what does happens at 30 years old? Jesus, he takes on his own disciples. Why didn't it happen before that? Because a rabbi, see, Jesus said, I'm going to do it all according to the rule book. Because a rabbi couldn't take his own disciples until he was 30 years old. So when Jesus is 30 years old, now he begins to call his Talmudim. He calls them to himself, come and follow me. And they would begin to do that. And the person that was 30 years old was now almost like giving Tim an, an ordination certificate. They were given the right to what would be known as speak with authority. And so, so often in the Scripture, we see this idea of authority, and it doesn't make sense to us. Remember, there's a few times that Jesus is confronted, and, 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 and these things begin to make sense. And, and, and he, they, say, they say to him, where did you get your authority? And we kind of today read it and go, what, what do they mean? I mean, he's God. That's where he got his authority. But what they're really saying is, is wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait, which rabbi did you follow? Who, who is your sage? Who is your master? Who is the one at age 30 issued you the authority so you can speak the way you do? You can give your opinion. But up to this point, we're not interested in your opinion. We're interested only in the opinions of the one who have authority. Where did you get your authority? Make sense to you? You see, this is questioned throughout. And so, but Jesus had authority, you know, from a higher source. And he makes this known a few times. He said, well, yeah, I kind of went to school, was a school of Jehovah. He, he was, my, he was my, my mentor, right? And so you see that now he begins to speak with authority. Where did you get such great learning, they said at one point. And so let me just refresh and wrap this up. Think about this for a minute. Here are these rejects. Now they're picked to be on the team. They had been given the same lies of the enemy that people are given today. You're not good enough to serve God. You're not good enough to know God. You're not good enough to walk with God. Jesus is the God of the second chance. He is the example of the God who loves us and remakes things. And so Jesus would say to those who would follow, he did it then, he does it today, come and follow me. And for us to really be disciples, he expects us to drop everything, at least in our own personal agendas. We are never called to follow a Savior. We're called to follow a Lord. And there is a difference 
And it saddens me when I meet believers today, they've accepted Jesus as Savior. They've never coronated him as Lord over their life, the master over his life, over their life. This is what fills in. And so we drop everything. And then they were taught that wherever the rabbi would go, you would go. Whenever the rabbi would come and pass by you, you would drop what you were doing. That's walking in the dust of the rabbi. That was a part of being his disciple. So let me finish with this one little thing for you to think about. We always look at the story of when Jesus walked on the water. Remember that story? They're out there in the storm. By the way, such a great story because the Bible actually tells us Jesus put them in the boat and sent them into the storm. You ever catch that part of the story? He sends them out there. He's God. He knows a storm is coming. But this is all about a lesson. This is all about them following. And so I think I preached this. Sorry, Tim, you may have preached this. But we get there, and there's old Peter. And Jesus is walking by, and Peter says, Lord, would, would you have me come to you? And, and, and the Lord says, sure, sir, come on. And then we laugh at Peter. Ha, ha, ha. They can't walk on water. You can't do anything. Can I give you another picture of that? Could, could I maybe suggest that of all the disciples, Peter was the only one in that scenario that was being obedient? Now, he was confused, and you read it in the Scripture they're out there in the boat. The storm's raging. Jesus passed by. They think it's a ghost. They realize it's the Lord. And as soon as they realize it's the Lord and their rabbi, and he is passing by, Peter says a very interesting thing. Peter says this. He says, wow, Lord, would, would you have me come? Would you have me follow you? Be, because we got a problem here, God. You're, uh, you're walking on water, and I'm okay on a path. I'm okay on a hill. I'm okay in a lot of scenarios. I've never done the walking on water thing. So I'm confused. Would you have me come? And what does Jesus tell him? Give it a shot. Give it your best try. And so Peter gets out of the boat, and he actually makes it for a little bit. And then he does the one thing that a lot of us do. He takes his eyes off of the Lord, and he puts his eyes on his circumstances. Classic mistake. Whenever we take our eyes off Jesus, whenever we begin to give more focus to the circumstances around us, we're headed for trouble. And so Peter sinks. Jesus lifts him out. They get on the boat, and everything is okay. But I would like to suggest to you that I think Peter was the one who was obedient. I think Peter looked at the obstacles, and he said, there's a few things I've never seen before, but Lord, I've been called to follow you, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. No matter what it looks like, no matter whether there's a storm, no matter whether there's difficulties, no matter if there's situations I've never seen before, just like the one in front of me, I'm going to follow you no matter what. Can you wave at the Lord and say, that's me today? I'm going to follow you, Lord, no matter what. In the midst of the storm, in the midst of it all, I'm going to be a follower of yours because I'm interested in being like you. I'm interested in transformation, not just information. I'm not in church just to be entertained, just to receive a, a few nuggets of truth. I've come to the house of the Lord. I've tuned in today because I'm interested in being transformed into the person of Jesus Christ. 
I am interested in Christ-likeness in my life. And when people look at me, they think that I have been with you. And so what do we see in the book of Acts? We see exactly that. Here's his disciples. We get to Acts chapter 4. They've, a miracle has taken place. Now they're proclaiming the lordship of Jesus in the temple, just like Jesus did. You know the story. The Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, they call them in to chew them out a little bit. Remember the story? But there's an interesting little twist in it. They're having trouble debating with this group of fishermen the same way they had trouble debating with Jesus. And they're actually confounded by this. And we read these little verses that if you don't understand about Talmud, they don't make a lot of sense. And they said this. They said, we don't get it because you guys are unschooled men. Remember this in Acts chapter 4? You're unschooled. What are they saying? They're saying, where did you get this authority? How do you tell laymen to throw aside the crutches and dance through the temple courts? How, how do you do this? How do you do these miracles? How, where, where did this come from? Because you're just unschooled. What are they saying? Which school did you go to? And then the, there must have been one in the crowd that goes, oh, I don't know whose school you went to, but we perceive you have been with Jesus. My life and your life, that's all I really care about. All I want everybody around me to know is I've been with Jesus. They may say about you, they may say about me, we can't figure out some of the unique things about you, but this we get. You wear the dust of your rabbi. You are Talmud. When we see you, we see Jesus. I hope that's your cause. I hope it's your hope. I hope it's everything you live for. We have not been called, dear church, to the Christian life just to be entertained, just to go to a church service, ju just to go through the motions. We have been called to be transformed into the image and the makeup of our teacher, our rabbi, our master, our Lord. Peter looked at the crowds and this is, he said, you need to know this Jesus that you crucified, this one who days earlier was denying him, stood before the crowds and said, this Jesus you have crucified, you need to know our God has made him both Lord and Christ. Kurios, Christos, the master of all things. And if I can understand he's the master of all things and you can understand that, there will be transformation in our lives. Can we pray together right now? Would you whisper a prayer to God? I wish we could do altar calls because of these crazy guidelines we've been given. We are more interested in your protection. But it sure doesn't mean you can't make an altar in your heart right now. It sure doesn't mean that whether it's here or at home, wherever you may be, you, you can't stop and build an altar right now. Say, so God, I'm not interested in information today. I'm interested in transformation. 
here in the sanctuary at home, let's just raise a hand to God and just ask the Lord, Lord, right now, would you just do a work in our hearts? Do a work in our lives? Move us beyond the circumstances. Move, move us, Lord, beyond the temporary aspects of this world and help us to see big picture today. In the powerful name of Jesus, I pray for all of my friends that are here in the sanctuary and all that are at home or wherever they may be, Lord, that this would be a moment where they could come to grips with lordship in their life. Say, Lord, I, I just want to be your Talmud today. I want to be transformed so that when people look at me, they see you, and you get the glory, and you get the honor for it. In Christ's great name, amen. Amen. God bless you all. Turn it back to your pastor.